You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey everybody, CJ here, Anarchy's Smooth Operator, here with another dastardly dose of Dangerous History. And this episode is going to primarily consist of the talk that I gave at the Sound Education Podcast Conference at Harvard University, actually at the Divinity School of Harvard University. My presentation was given in the afternoon on November 2nd, 2018, and I want to say a big thank you to Zach and everyone else involved in organizing and running the event for doing the event and for inviting me to speak and all that. It was a really cool experience. I got to meet a bunch of interesting people, mostly fellow podcasters, some of whom I've had interactions with online before and some of whom I have not. So it was a really cool thing to go to. I'm CJ, for those of you who don't know me, and I do a history show called the Dangerous History Podcast. And I've been teaching college history for over 12 years and podcasting about history for over four years. And um, basically what I've noticed is that there's a giant difference, both in terms of how the quote unquote learners uh, experience things and the benefits they get, and then also from my end, as as the teacher, as the the content producer, that it's a very different situation, a very different dynamic when I'm in my my day job teaching versus in my nighttime Batman role as history podcaster. So, have any of you in here taught in a classroom setting? Okay. Well, that counts. And have any of you in here podcasted in an educational way? Okay. So we've got one who has experience in both. I'm curious, have you noticed any differences either in your, in your end of things or from what you can tell of the recipient of the learner? Mm hmm. Hmm, that, that's interesting. Yeah, I've actually, I don't know if, if I've just been uh, unusual or lucky or what in this extent, but I, I have gotten a lot of feedback from listeners. And, um, you know, I, have, I don't have like objective exam scores for them or anything, obviously, but, you know, it sure does, it sure does seem like a, a lot of them, at least the ones that I hear from or that I meet in person at events and things, they end up um, learning a lot. And it's not to say my students in the classroom never do, but it's amazing how often 
um, a listener to my show will come up and, and meet me in an event or email me or something like that and say, oh, you know, remember in this episode when you said this and that? And like they'll, they'll rattle off some detail that I barely even remember, you know, that I'd have to go look back at my notes for. Um, or they'll rattle off like three books they just ordered because I briefly mentioned them in the show uh, and something they were interested in. And it's like that kind of thing does happen in the classroom, but it's rare. It's rare. So I've, I've noticed huge amounts of differences um, in terms of overall averages, both on my end and on the learner's end, especially as regards things like morale uh, and engagement and learning and, from what I can tell, uh, retention and that sort of thing. And I've also noticed I've enjoyed the podcasting more, especially once I kind of figured out how to do it okay, uh, because it allows me to be more creative than I can in a conventional classroom setting because I don't have those same limitations of having to fulfill a particular course outline and having to cover the same things over and over and over endlessly because it's like the most popular class that students take and whatever. And so I can, I can cover the Bronze Age one week and then the next week cover something that happened in history five years ago and no one can tell me not to. Um, and the only thing I might have to worry about is do my listeners not like it? But, you know, I can't do the same thing in the classroom. I ha- kind of have to teach what I have to teach that semester. So no matter how much I try, a certain percentage of students in my regular classes seem to spend the semester looking at me like I owe them money. And a small percentage, usually 10 occasionally in a very unusually good class, 20% are really actively engaged, really um, getting what I'm saying on on deeper levels and things like that. Oops, almost knocked it over. And um, I'm not trying to, to kind of toot my own horn or anything, but I know that I'm actually a pretty good teacher in the conventional classroom um, based on student feedback and uh, based on various types of observations and evaluations and just informal feedback and whatever. I know that I'm I'm an above-average history teacher in the classroom, but even so, 10 to 20% really engaged, maybe another, I don't know, 20, 30, 40% at times, totally just looking at me like I owe them money, Nothing I can do to get them interested. Um, and then in the middle, I can sway a few people over the course of the semester if I'm, if I'm good enough. You know, I can, I can sway a few, to, but they'll never be like that 10 to 20% who are just, you know, interested in it right off the bat. You know, I've, I've noticed things like conventional students in a classroom are extremely happy if you are out sick and cancel class. And that, that even counts the ones who like you as a teacher. Or if you let class out early. They don't go, you're shortchanging me. I paid for an hour and 15 minutes today. And how dare you give me 45 minutes? You know, they celebrate. Whereas I've, I've found, especially when I've gone long periods of time uh, between episodes, that your podcast fans will be sad and concerned if you don't, you know, if you go longer than the usual gap between episodes. And they may even eventually become a bit impatient and a bit angry. If you don't, and I've never had students, like if I'm out sick two classes in a row from my day job, I've never had students like contacting me first being, oh no, are you okay? And then if I'm still out sick a little bit longer going, how dare you, you know, get, get off your ass and come in and do some work for us. So I'm arguing here that the difference is largely due to the fact 
that the interaction between podcaster and listener is entirely mutually voluntary on both ends. While the interaction in a conventional classroom, institutional schooling type situation generally is not and often is like very not. So um, now there, there's, there's gradations of, of how voluntary it is in certain, in certain school settings and things, but nonetheless, it's rarely fully voluntary. Voluntary interactions and relationships require mutual consent of all participating parties. Otherwise, they would not occur. So by definition, in some way, on some level, voluntary interactions and relationships have to be perceived as win-win. Otherwise, they wouldn't occur because no one is forcing anyone to continue. So by contrast, involuntary interactions and relationships are more likely to be, at least to some extent, and perhaps all the way, either win-lose or even in some cases lose-lose. The question of whether or not something is voluntary, which is really the question of consent, is a very important and sometimes, I think, tragically overlooked detail about relationships that drastically changes the morality of a given relationship or a given interaction. And you can think of simple examples right off the top of your head where what is occurring like physically is the same, but the ethics of it are drastically flipped around if it's voluntary versus involuntary. So consent is the difference between borrowing and stealing something. Consent is the difference between having a job and being a slave. Consent is the difference between donating to charity and paying your taxes. Consent is even the difference between having sex and committing rape, to use an extreme example to illustrate it. But for the rest of my, my remarks here, I'm going to set aside this moral dimension, important though I think it is, to mostly talk about the other benefits of a voluntary educational relationship and the benefits that, that come from this of having a much more mutually voluntary consent-based educational paradigm, such as what you get in podcasting. You know, I'm not saying that podcasting is the only uh, way in which this can happen. I'm just saying we're at a podcasting conference, so that's kind of, you know, what I'm going to talk about. Now, in terms of my own personal teaching um, experience, I'm mostly teaching intro-level gen ed classes. I teach at a place that up until not too many years ago, was a community college. So it's mostly intro-level gen ed classes to students, 90% of whom are not history majors, at least 90%. And honestly, probably 80 to 90% of them would never ever even set foot in my class if they were not coerced into doing so, uh, typically in order to satisfy a gen ed requirement credit. They didn't choose my class, they may have chosen me out of other possible alternative uh, history teachers, but that's, you know, not really free choice. That's just picking whatever you consider the least objectionable out of some predetermined options. It's true that on some level, these students chose to go to college. And on some level, they chose to go to my college, although there might be constraining factors that didn't make that exactly an open-ended choice anyway. So I'll admit that it's somewhat more voluntary of a relationship than what most students have in like a K through 12 
class setting where there's even less that you can say in terms of them choosing to be there in, in most instances. But even in, in my situation, it's still not truly voluntary for most of them. So this is somewhat different for sure when you get into the upper levels of a discipline, like when you start to get into you know, senior level undergrad classes and then up into graduate school, where more, though by no means all, uh, students have some inherent interest in the topic, but that scenario doesn't describe most of the students most of the time they're in school. So in other words, with rare exceptions, usually around 10% of a class is a good average in my experience, because the students are not there really voluntarily, they're not intrinsically motivated to actually learn about the subject that I'm teaching. And while an effective teacher can try and you know, get some of them interested over the course of the semester, and certainly I try to do that as best I can, no one is going to, um, regardless of kind of Hollywood depictions of teachers and things, no one's going to get 100% of students in an involuntary class setting to really get on board and really get interested. Nobody is, uh, is going to be that effective. Um, I, don't, I don't think, anyway. I could be wrong. So, um, you know, the overwhelming majority, 80-90% of students in a traditional class situation, they're motivated entirely or in large part by extrinsic factors. So in my situation, for example, they're motivated by, number one, social pressure to go to college, whether they really want to or not, whether it's really for them or not, whether they'd rather be doing something else or not. They have tremendous social and propaganda pressure coming from all directions to push them towards it. And then, like I said, they've got the punching out of jet and ed requirement thing, and then they also have a, a desire to have some sort of a GPA. Um, you know, on one level, they, they obviously want enough of a GPA to pass the class, and they also, in some cases, you know, have to have a certain GPA to uh, keep a scholarship or to keep athletic eligibility or that sort of thing. But in other words, with rare exceptions, they are not motivated by intrinsic curiosity in my subject or most of the other classes they're taking, honestly. So um, this, this involuntary sort of relationship has negative effects on morale and performance. And by performance here, I really mean real learning in kind of the deep uh, idealistic sense of the word, not so much performance on tests and things like that, but like really learning. And there is a difference. I've had students that, you know, got a C plus in my, in my course, but I could tell they really learned some stuff. And they really kind of de grasped on a deep level a lot of the points I was making. And I've had other students who, you know, whatever, they just have a good memory and are good test takers or who knows what, and they get A's and it's not at all clear that they really learn much that was really deep or anything like that. And it also um, has negative effects on, on the teacher side of things, you know, uh, in terms of having a satisfying, meaningful teaching experience. You're going to have some, but you're not going to have it uh, most of the time. So there's also this problem of, in a conventional classroom setting, you are assigning grades. You are evaluating and recording grades. This immediately creates an adversarial relationship with the teacher uh, in which the student's incentives are often to try to simply achieve whatever their letter grade goal is with the least amount of effort, meaning the least amount of learning possible. Like it's really an art form for them. So on average, most of them are going to learn little, they're going to retain less, and they're going to appreciate the teacher's efforts and creativity relatively little as well. 
and they're going to see the teacher most of the time, regardless of, of kind of what you try to do with them, um, especially if you're in the situation I am where you literally have these people in classes for three hours a week. You know, it's like maybe, maybe if you have them for eight hours a day, five days a week for a year, you can have much more of a real impact. But for three hours a week for one semester, it's like you can't do that much. They're going to end up, because of prior experience and because of this adversarial situation, seeing me as the enemy, as the man, as the boss, as the management, as the authority figure. And this harms the teacher's morale and intrinsic motivation to teach, especially over time. You've probably all seen The Simpsons. You've probably all seen Miss Krabappel, right? The jaded, chain-smoking, um, just completely worn-out, run-down teacher who probably her first few years was really peppy and idealistic and really out there to do some good in the world. And, you know, it just wore her down. So the, the experience, I think, of, of a voluntary educational relationship is much better to both, both sides of the equation, to both parties. And part of the reason why, I think, is the difference between extrinsic motivations, where you're basically being prodded by carrots and sticks, versus intrinsic motivations, where a person is trying to learn something out of some you know, hazy combination of innate curiosity and, and seeking of, of purpose and wanting to master some sort of knowledge or skill or whatever. Now, Wikipedia, and don't laugh at the reference because Wikipedia was actually built entirely on intrinsic motivation and yet has outcompeted Microsoft and Carta and is also now rated as more accurate on average than Encyclopedia Britannica. Wikipedia says this about intrinsic motivation. The two necessary elements for intrinsic motivation are self-determination and an increase in perceived competence. In short, the cause of the behavior must be internal, and the individual who engages in the behavior must, be, must perceive that the task increases their competence. Students who are intrinsically motivated are more likely to, Im, uh, to engage in the task willingly as well as work to improve their skills, which will increase their capabilities. Students are likely to be intrinsically motivated if they attribute their educational results to factors under their own control, believe they have the skills to be effective agents at reaching their desired goals, and are interested in mastering a topic, not just in achieving good grades. So, in my experience, and this is just, you know, anecdotal, the vast majority of, listen, of listeners to an educational-type podcast, if they're listeners for any length of time, they are intrinsically uh, motivated to learn about your topic. Otherwise, they would never have started listening in the first place, and they certainly wouldn't have, wouldn't have continued listening very long. And they appreciate the work and the creativity of the podcaster, which creates a much more positive interaction and relationship. You know, if they don't like you or if they don't like the topic, they probably will never try to listen to you. And if they do, they'll probably listen to something else pretty quickly. So, you know, with podcast listeners, you've got generally a self-selected group who've chosen to listen to your show out of genuine interest and they're free to come and go as they please with no penalty to them if they stop listening to you or if they only listen to some episodes and not others. There's, there's just no penalty. And there's a really uh, good, fairly recent book about intrinsic motivation. Some of you may have read it or heard of it. It's called Drive um, by a guy named Daniel Pink. And in there, he collects all kinds of different experiments from the social sciences that show that when you offer rewards and you know carrots and sticks to try and improve people's performance, it actually very often negatively 
affects their performance. They do worse than when they're doing something because of intrinsic motivation. Mindless routine sort of tasks. Those things you can use carrots and sticks and, and improve people's performance. But anything that requires um, real thinking and, and creativity and all that, actually it, it gets decreased in performance when you have extrinsic motivations. And uh, Pink, who's more kind of aiming his, his thinking at, at a business audience for the most part, he often says things like, there's a disconnect between what science knows and what business does in regard to this stuff. And perhaps the same thing is true when it comes to schooling. And I think um, I want to point out here there's an important difference between education and schooling. They are not the same thing. They might overlap a little bit. Um, I didn't bring a visual aid, but you know the way I think of it is as a as a Venn diagram with two circles, one called schooling, one called education, and they do overlap a bit. I'm not saying no one ever has any education happen to them in school, but I think a lot of the time people spend in school, they're not really getting an education, and I think a lot of the education every single person has and has acquired over the course of their life, the vast majority of it came from school, not one bit. So schooling, I'm talking about the institutional situation where things are less voluntary, where it's not primarily about uh, extrinsic, or sorry, intrinsic motivation. It's about extrinsic, where it's degrees, grades, certificates, et cetera, education being true learning, where you're learning something either because you think it'll be useful and helpful to you or because you're just inherently interested in it or perhaps both. So I would say that for most of us, I would guess that only a small percentage of our education actually came from our schooling over the course of our lives. Most of our knowledge is things we learned outside of a school setting because we were interested in it or we thought it might be useful to know. So historically, by the way, I'll mention the conventional classroom paradigm, which largely came to the United States from, of all places, the Kingdom of Prussia, was deliberately designed to create obedient, docile factory workers and to create obedient, docile cannon fodder on the battlefield. It was never designed or intended to create intrinsically motivated, creative people who come out genuinely educated and able to really think for themselves. That's not what it's designed for. It's designed to create people who are easily managed as a mass. So people who like and who listen to your podcast, if you do a podcast... I think they appreciate it more and learn more from it and retain more of their learning as contrasted with most classroom experiences, even when we're talking about above average teachers. And I think that you as the quote unquote teacher, podcaster, end up benefiting from this voluntary and completely non-adversarial, more kind of peer-to-peer -peer relationship. Um, because I learn things, and I learn things from my students every now and then in, in regular class as well, but I learn things from my podcast listeners all the time. They'll email me uh, some article I didn't know about. They'll, they'll you know, email me, oh, have you, have you seen this book? Have you seen this? Um, they, you know, turn me on to all kinds of things I didn't know about in the past. So there's more of a peer-to-peer of a -peer kind of relationship. So um, just to kind of close out my remarks, I'd like to suggest that if we really want to turn schooling into true education, we need to really consider questions of voluntary versus involuntary and questions of intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. And um, I wanted to just close out with some words from a, a guy who is sort of a hero of mine who actually passed away very recently, like within the last week, 
um, a guy named John Taylor Ghetto, who was uh, an award-winning teacher in New York public schools for something like 30 years, was, was a teacher of the year in New York City and New York State, and who, after 30 years of that, publicly resigned and became an outspoken critic of American schooling. And a lot of his criticism had exactly to do with this problem that it's not, um, it's not based on consent. So just some, uh, some words from John Taylor Gatto. He says, It is absurd and anti-life to be part of a system that compels you to listen to a stranger reading poetry when you want to learn to construct buildings or to sit with a stranger discussing the construction of buildings when you want to read poetry. Whatever an education is, it should make you a unique individual, not a conformist. It should furnish you with an original spirit with which to tackle the big challenges. It should allow you to find values which will be your roadmap through life. It should make you spiritually rich, a person who loves whatever you are doing, wherever you are, whomever you are doing it with. It should teach you what is important, how to live and how to die. Thank you very much for your time and attention. All right, and so to close out this episode, I just want to share one quote that I left out of my presentation because I was looking at the clock and I was already running up at about 20 minutes, which is how long I was supposed to speak for. And so I skipped over a couple of things, but one that I just wanted to share with you here that was originally going to be part of this talk that has to do with the whole concept of intrinsic versus extrinsic motivations and how extrinsic motivations can often negatively impact your performance on something. This is something that goes, forget about modern psychiatry and other social sciences talking about this stuff. This is one that goes back to close to 2,500 years ago and the great Chinese Taoist sage Tuangzu, who all the way back then had a grasp on this idea of extrinsic motivations screwing you up. So Chuangzu said, quote, When an archer is shooting for fun, he has all his skill. If he shoots for a brass buckle, he is already nervous. If he shoots for a prize of gold, he goes blind or sees two targets. He thinks more of winning than of shooting, and the need to win drains him of power. End quote. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it and found value in it. And I'd like to give a special thanks to the following awesome individuals for helping me to keep doing what I'm doing. For signing up to support the show via Patreon, I'd like to thank Greg, Dallas, John, Richard, Lon, James, Erspo, and Jeff. Thanks very much for stepping up to support the show. Amazon thank yous. 
to Donald for getting me Legacy of Ashes, The History of the CIA, and to Ben for getting me The Devil's Chessboard, Alan Dulles, The CIA, and the Rise of America's Secret Government from my Amazon wish list. Pretty cool coincidence that both of these books that just arrived around the same time recently both have to do with the history of the CIA and some of its darker elements. So nice sort of convergence or coincidence. If you like this show, please go to the website, DangerousHistoryPodcast.com, to find the show notes, including Amazon links for this and all other regular DHP episodes. You can also like and follow the show on Facebook and also follow the show on Twitter. And if you like the show, please subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or however else you prefer to get your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me out to keep this thing going and growing and constantly improving, such as simply spreading the word to other people you think might like the show and leaving ratings and reviews in places like iTunes. You can also help the show financially. Go to profcj.org donate. And you'll find a bunch of different ways to do this, including a link to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash profcj. And for a pledge of just $5 per month, you'll have access to special bonus episodes available nowhere else, early access to ad-free versions of all regular upcoming DHP episodes, and access to what I call vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. You'll also be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. Also on the donate page, you will find links to do one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, as well as donations via Bitcoin. Another great way you can help out the show is to do your Amazon shopping through any of the Amazon affiliate links and do your A-book shopping from any of my A-books affiliate links found anywhere on my website. I post Amazon affiliate links of items related to each episode in that episode's show notes. I also have generic Amazon and A-books affiliate links in the sidebar of the website. And if you go through any of those links to those sites and buy anything, even if it's not an item I specifically link to, I will get a small commission and that helps me keep the show going. Also want to mention a continuing work in progress is my dangerous Amazon bibliography. If you go to profcj.org slash Amazon, that's profcj.org slash Amazon. There's also a link to it on the little post-it note on my website. And there you'll find a whole ton of Amazon links to books and movies organized by rough subject matter. And those are all things that have been a very big influence on me and on this show. You know, not all of them are books I've cited as of yet somewhere on the show, but they're all books that have informed my thinking, many of which I have cited from and many of which I will cite from in the future to some degree or another. And of course, those being Amazon affiliate links, if you buy anything from any of those links, even if it's not the item itself that was linked to, but you click through to Amazon from one of those links, then buy something else, I will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. And this will help keep the Dangerous History podcast rolling as well. Also, if you need some stock audiovisual materials, such as stock video to use in a film you're making or music to put in a podcast, that sort of thing, check out Pond5.com. They have a great collection of high-quality, royalty-free material available for purchase. And please go there through my affiliate link if you'd like to help out this show. I've used a lot of music from Pond5 in my podcast episodes, including, by the way, all the great music in my Not-So-Civil War series that I'm always getting compliments and questions on. 
So if you go through the Pond5 affiliate link, if you purchase anything, I will get a commission from anything you buy at no additional cost to you, as with the Amazon links as well. And of course, be sure to patronize any other companies whose ads you may have heard on this episode, if you're at all interested in the products that they offer. That's another way you can help out this show. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>